God is good, isn't he? God is faithful no matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter where, where the Bible says where evil abound, grace does much more abound. And although things at times look bad and times look, can look very difficult, those are the times God is in the midst of those times. This is why we're here. You've heard me say this over and over again, and you'll probably hear me say it again over and over again. It is for such a time as this that God has called us. The Bible teaches us that, uh, especially if you look in Hebrews chapter 12 and also in 1 Peter, that the, the saints that have gone on before us are rooting us on. We, they know that we are the last leg of something that they began or helped continue along. And this is part of a grand plan that is in God's control. God is, nothing's outside of his control. And that you and I have, been, have the privilege of being put here for such a time as this. But that means we need to get ready and to get prepared. Praise the Lord. So to do that, we're going to get into God's Word. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. Is Jesus. Let me read our scriptures. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked to them the question of the ages. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth I will bind in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that you have given to us. And as we open your word, we do so with reverence and respect that this is a gift from you to your church here at Faith Christian Center. Through this word, you desire to speak to us today, not so much to our minds, but much more into our hearts and to our spirits, to deposit down inside of us vision and, and understanding of things that are beyond what our minds can begin to grasp. Father, you are guiding us and you are directing us by the Holy Spirit. And so we look to him today to open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see what is the hope of his calling for our lives that is in Christ Jesus. And so we rely upon him today and upon the word of God and we give you thanks in advance for all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. As I began, we began this study a number of weeks ago, I shared with you, I really sensed that really for the last part of last year, God had put this on my heart as to be a focus for, for us, for the church for this year. Since then, I've begun to hear other ministries begin to focus on the same thing. But it's become clearer and clearer and clearer to me that this is exactly where God wants us to look right now and that there are answers in this, that what the purpose of all of this is that the church needs to have an adjustment made inside of it. 
And this is going to happen because it has to happen in order for the church to take its place in the hour in which we live. The church right now is flabby, and I don't mean just physically, spiritually flabby. We're spiritually lazy, and we're good people. But compared to where we need to be, we fall very far short of it. And God is a good father and a gracious father. He knows right where we are, and he knows right where we need to be, and he knows how to get us there if we'll follow him and seek him. And that's what this is about. And what this is about is there are adjustments that God wants to make in this church, in the church in the United States, and perhaps the world, but my focus is here. And God wants to make, therefore, in our lives. But instead of doing it by saying, these are the 10 things you're doing wrong, and these are the 10 things you're doing right, what God's shown me to do is to begin to focus on who He is. And as we get a revelation of who He is, that will begin to make the adjustment in our lives. Let me give you a little insight into what, why that's so important. King David, the greatest king of Israel, also committed one of the greatest sins. Not only did he commit adultery with the woman next door, but then he had her husband killed to cover it up. And when God had him confronted through the prophet Nathan, David's first reaction was, I'm sorry, was not, I'm sorry for what I've done. David's first reaction was not, I'm sorry I've gotten caught, I'm sorry. David's first reaction is, I have sinned against my God. David, the Bible said, was a man after God's own heart. David's heart sought the heart of God to please him. And he wasn't perfect, he fell short, and obviously he failed and sinned. But because that's where his heart was set, he was able to make an adjustment that helped him to overcome and get back where he needed to be. When the grounds of repentance for having done something wrong is I got caught, we know that should be wrong, or I'm just sorry, or I'm sorry I've hurt other people, and we should be sorry, that's not enough to change your life around. It has to be based on what effect it had on God. But to do that, God has to have a place in your heart and in your life where he is the most important factor in your life. And that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what's behind the study. That's the purpose of this study. As we went through it, we saw, first of all, that, that, that this is the question of the ages. We saw that almost everybody alive at that time had on their mind or on their lips, who is this man? From his disciples on up to the Pharisees, to, the, to, the, to Herod, everybody was on the lips of people. Who is this man? He's different. Even when he spoke, they knew there was something different about him because he spoke as one having authority. We went back and saw that when he went back to his own hometown and he read the scriptures, which he'd read before, they knew there was something different about him and they asked, who is this man? And now Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? People have an opinion. Now, they may not think much about it, but they, the fact that they don't think much about it shows their opinion. I'm going to say that again. The fact that they don't think much about him or talk much about him tells us what their opinion is of him. And everybody has an opinion of Jesus that's heard of him. And then he asks the question. He turns to his own disciples and said, and who do you say that I am? This is the question for the ages. It's the only question that everybody is going to be asked and everybody will have an answer for and their answer will determine their eternal destiny. Who do you say that I am? Well, I, I know who he is. Jesus is God's son. I know who he is. Yes. But who you really say he is 
is reflected in the life that you live for him. And then he turned to Peter and says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show you that. You didn't figure that out because you're so smart and because you've been watching me so carefully. But that's been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And we saw that this, that what God wants to show us about who Jesus is has to come by revelation. And I shared with you last week, well, that's a little frustrating, Pastor, to tell me that the thing I absolutely need, I can't go get myself. He's got to show it to me. And we shared with you the reason for that. God is not holding it back. Is that what God wants us to recognize is that what we understand of Him now is not enough. When you get a revelation of something, you know it. When a revelation hits you, you know now you've seen something you didn't see before, even though you may be looking at the same thing. There's suddenly a revelation or an illumination, sometimes it's called, where you recognize something that you didn't see before. When I first met my wife, Anita, it was on a blind date, and we're not going to go through that whole story again. But, but you know, and, and I, I came away from that time thinking, you know, she was a nice girl, and I liked her, and, you know, but I wasn't necessarily going to particularly fall in love with her. She was a nice girl. I felt good with her and enjoyed her. She was different than other girls. And, 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 and so, I, you know, I knew who she was, and, but the next time I met her, something happened. I got a revelation. And I fell in love with her. And from that moment on, I didn't see her the same way I saw her in the beginning, even though she was the same person. That insight, that revelation down in my heart changed how I saw her and how I acted towards her to the point that I, was at willing, I, want, I asked her to be my wife, not immediately, asked her to be my wife and to literally live the rest of our lives together. And that happened because of an insight, a revelation of her that touched my heart. So the purpose of descri- discussing that it comes by revelation is because when you have that revelation, you'll know it. That means if you haven't had it yet, you haven't seen it yet. And that's to create in us a hunger and a desire to realize we need to press in more. So we've looked over the last week or so at several of these revelations that have happened. We saw Moses before God called Moses to do what he was called to do. He had him come to the base of a mountain and, and, he, and he peered to him through a burning bush and we've talked about that before. We saw Isaiah last week that although Isaiah had a knowledge of God and was serving God and was prophesying in order for him to step into what God had called him to do, God called him by a vision or dream or whatever it was literally into the throne room of God and when Isaiah saw who God was his first next reaction was to see who he was in contrast to God. And although in everybody else's eyes he was a good man compared to who God is, he was a man of unclean lips and he said, woe is me. Because only when you really see who God is do you really discover who you are apart from him and then can you discover who you are in him. And so we saw, we saw Moses, we saw Isaiah. And then we saw a curious person you might never think of. We looked at Job. We saw how God called Job a righteous man, but that Job had some inner attitudes he didn't realize until he got under extreme pressure. And under that extreme pressure, an attitude about God came out that somehow he thought he was somewhat equal with God and that God therefore put him on the witness stand and began to ask him some questions. That by asking these questions, God was revealing to Job who God really is. Such questions like, all right, Job, 
Let me ask you where you've been. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you know what I measured it by? No, were you here at the creation? Did you help me out with this? Well, he obviously couldn't because he was part of the creation. So we saw that. Before we go on to this next thing, I want to just clo close that part of the discussion with one other person. We're not going to turn there. But in Acts chapter 9 is the story of another revelation. It's a revelation uh, received by a man named Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. We've talked about him before. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was one of the bright shining stars, the shooting stars of his day. He was intelligent, educated. He sat at the feet of the most highly respected rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. And Paul was a man passionate for God. But he didn't know who this Christ was. And so because he thought that Christ was a deceiver, that this was a distraction and a heresy, he did everything within his power to destroy this new movement, which was at that time called the Way. And so he had, was on the road to Damascus with letters from the authorities in Jerusalem to go and arrest every believer that he could find, throw them in jail, bring them down to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and punished because they were heretics. And on that road, he had a revelation of who Jesus is. Because at high noon, now we're talking about high noon in Palestine, where the sun is higher than it ever gets to be here in this part of the country. At high noon, a light appeared that was so bright it overshadowed the sun. And obviously it was the presence of God. And he fell off his horse. And that a voice spoke to him from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, which shows he knew, knew who he was. See, God knows who you are. He knows where you are in every aspect of that word. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who art thou, Lord? And I, he, he revealed that he was Jesus, the Christ. And that one revelation turned this man's life completely around and everything he was determined to do to destroy this movement now turned around to promote the Christ that he was trying to destroy. One moment in time changed not only the Apostle Paul but affected the church forever because this man wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But it took a revelation of who Jesus is. And by that revelation, he could no longer continue the way he was going. He had to do something different because he now understood who this Jesus is. That's what we've covered up until now. Now let's look at the next verse. Because each of these verses build on one another. So now we know that we need a revelation of who Jesus is. Oh, by the way, we've talked about this before. It's interesting that in the revelation that God gives to Peter about Jesus, it's interesting what he does not say about him. Because the question is, who do you say that I am. Notice God through Peter does not say, you are the deliverer. 
God, through Peter, does not say, you are the Savior of the world, although he is, and John the Baptist testified of that. He does not say about Jesus, you are the Redeemer, you are the Healer. Why does he not say that? Because each one of those is something Jesus does, not who he is. So we've seen that what we're after is not a deeper revelation of what Jesus has done for us, although that's fine, but it's not enough. It's a deeper revelation of who he is. Because when you discover what he's done for you, the response for that is to be grateful. When you discover who he is, the response for that is it changes who you are. Do you see the difference? It's an important difference. And so now what Jesus says to him is, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now look at verse 18, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and up and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell shall not prevail against it. I say to you that you are Peter. Now his Hebrew name was Simon, Bar-Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah. And Jesus is now giving to him a new name. And that name always signifies something when a name is changed. Just as Paul's name, Saul's name was changed to Paul. And so he gives him a new name and he says, you are Peter. The Greek word, that's an English word that's based on a Greek word which is petros, which is masculine. And in the Greek, the gender of a noun means, is very significant and it's not based on whether the person you're talking about is male or female. It's a way to identify that word. Upon, he says, you are Peter or Petros. The Latin version of it, I think it's Latin, is Cephas, which you'll see in some, some translations. You are Peter or Petros. And then he says, and upon this rock, and the Greek word now is Petra, which is fem feminine, I will build my church. And there are many people who have read this verse, and you know who I'm talking about, to read it as if Jesus is saying, and you are Peter, and upon you I will build my church. But that's clearly not what Jesus is saying, because there's other scriptures we're going to look at to show that he doesn't talk about Peter when he talks about the foundation of church elsewhere. And there's a play on words here. Because he's saying you're Petros. Now, the, 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 the real meaning of that word is a small chunk of stone. You are a small chunk of stone. But upon this Petra, which means a large rock that you build things on, or a foundation, I will build my church. So what is this rock upon which Jesus said, 
he will build his church. Well, one insight we get into that is in Matthew 7, where Jesus says, says I, you know, he talks about that, that if you are my followers, if I, you know, I, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't we prophesy your name and do all these wonderful things? And I'll say, depart from me. I, I never knew who you were. I didn't have a relationship with you. And then he goes on to say about two men that built their house. One of them built it on a rock. And the rains came and the storms came and the house stood because it was built on a rock, a foundation. And that rock, he said, was, you did what I told you to do. The other man built it on sand and his house didn't stand. So let's look at what this rock is because what Jesus is saying is, listen carefully, I will build my church. There are people out there today trying to build their church. The Lord spoke to me a while ago and said, Son, your responsibility is not to build this church. That's my responsibility. Your responsibility is to feed the people and equip the people so that they can do the work that I've called them to do. If you do what I've called you to do, then I will do what I'm supposed to do, which is to build the church. I, he said, will build my church, but I'll only build it upon this rock, in other words, this foundation. And what is that foundation? It's the revelation of who he is. So that's what we're going to look about, at least begin to look about today. So let's look at some scriptures. That's a good thing to do in church. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now Paul is writing here to the church at Corinth, which was at that point divided into factions, into different cliques, which were based around different known ministers, and we have that happening today. And they were fighting with one another because they believed that the man they were following was more important than the one that the other people were following. So he says, you know, some of you say I'm of Paul, some of you said I'm of Cephas or Peter, some say I'm of Apollo, and so Paul is writing to bring correction to their immaturity, which is what he calls it. But here's how he does it. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, talking about the different men, Apollos and Peter and Paul who had come there and taught them. We are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, you are God's building. Changes the metaphor. You are God's building. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation for the church here. Now, he's not talking about cinder blocks. He's talking about the spiritual foundation. I have laid the foundation, and another has built upon it, but let each one take heed or care how he builds upon it, for no other fa- foundation can anyone laid, lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work what sort of work it is. But notice, if we don't do our whatever activity we're doing, if it's not based on the foundation of the, the Jesus established, which is who he is, then it's worthless. It's man's building. The foundation of the church is the revelation of who Jesus is. Matthew 21. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Isaiah 28. Got ahead of myself. Verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried or a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure or certain foundation. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. your fingers working today. Verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's talking to the Gentiles who had no covenant with God before and they've been brought into the, into the covenant of God. You are no longer strangers or foreigners but your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, or the church, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple or dwelling place in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, here he says the apostles are also part of that foundation. But Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, let's talk about what a cornerstone is. I'm not a mason. I have trouble drawing a straight line with a ruler. Somehow I can get it down there and I can draw it out there and somewhere it moved. <laughs> But I have watched masons, stonemasons, build walls. And what they, the key is to whether that wall is going to be straight and therefore strong is the first stone that's laid. Now, sometimes in the construction of a building, the last thing they'll do is lay what they call the cornerstone, and on it they'll put a, they'll have a ceremony, you know. They start the building with a, with a ground breaking, where the, you know, the executives come out with the bankers and with the shovels, you know, and they put the hard hats on, because, of course, nothing's going to hit them that day, but anyway, it looks impressive. And they dig that first stone, you know, and he smiles for the camera, looks like they were actually working, you know, and then they go back to the air-conditioned offices. But, uh, 
And so that's the groundbreaking. And often what they'll do at the end is they'll lay the last stone, which is in the corner, called the cornerstone, and on it they'll put the date that it was finished and maybe the names of the people that dug the stone, you know, whatever it is, okay? It's a ceremony. But in, in reality, a cornerstone is the first stone that's laid because it determines what the rest of the foundation will be and the foundation determines what can be built upon it. The foundation is the most important part of a building. I've shared with you before, for, for, I'm sure it was God, for a teaching lesson. It seemed that, in, that at least, let's see, one, two, maybe three offices that I worked in uh, were across the street from a major construction site. And I just, now I'm telling on myself, I was actually working on the phone, but I would look out the window <laughs> and watch the process they went through. The last one I was at, was near, was, was across the street and down. I walked past it every day on the way to work. And, and I watched this foundation. When they started the building, they dug down four stories. They didn't go up. They went down. And I thought, they're going the wrong direction. Well, I knew they were laying a foundation. I wasn't that ignorant. I knew they were laying a foundation. But it was months. It was like four months that they devoted to digging this huge hole out, pouring the walls, and then filling the bottom of this four-foot hole with cement. Then they put metal in there, and then they laid a two-story foundation on a part of it and sunk steel girders into it. And I'm watching this thing go up. And what are they doing? And then I asked my boss, because I wasn't familiar with what this building was going to be, he said, well, what they're doing is there was an 11-story building that was a historical site. And they were going to build a 60-story building on top of it without destroying that building. Well, with, for finances, they cut it back to 40 stories. And so what they did is they were going to build a building behind it, a modern office building. It's still there. It was going to go up 11-plus stories it was going to be cantilevered or hung out over the first building, and that was going to go up another 30 stories. In order to do that, they have to have the back of this building anchored so strongly that the top 30 floors aren't going to tilt over and crash. Before they can do that, they have to have laid a strong enough and deep enough foundation to counterbalance the tipping weight of that building. They spent about four months digging and pouring that foundation. And when they were done, then they began the steel structure, which literally went up in weeks. It was amazing the difference. Four months to dig and pour the foundation. Weeks to put the structure up. The, the, the structure itself, not the outside, and, you know, but the steel structure. Weeks. Because the lesson of that, and I saw that happen more than once, the, not so much because it, the others weren't the tilting buildings, but it was the same kind of proportionate. Because the care you put into the foundation and the quality of that foundation determines what you can build on top of it. And that's so important to understand in the church because what the church is built on will determine what it's able to do. 
And Jesus is saying here, the Spirit is saying here, that unless the church is built on the revelation of who Jesus is, it will not be able to accomplish what it's called to do. So we have to have that revelation of who Jesus is. The cornerstone of the foundation also determines the straightness of it because everything else is measured from that cornerstone. The line is, you, you used to do that, didn't you, Joseph? You, you, you set a cornerstone, a brick or a, or a cinder block, right? I ought to have him come up and preach it. And, and, and you draw lines from that first stone that determine where all the other stones, every other stone in the foundation is measured by the cornerstone, the first stone that's laid. And Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. And everything in the church is measured by Him and not what we think. It's measured by Him and not some committee of stones. It's measured by Him and not the way the winds seem to be blowing today. It's measured by Him and what not, what, not what seems to be popular or unpopular. It's measured by Him and Him alone. Because He is the cornerstone of the foundation. All right, let's look at some more scriptures. Well, let's keep reading here. Verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple or dwelling place in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now not only does this rock, not only does this revelation, it not only is that the foundation and the cornerstone of the foundation, but it also becomes the determination for your life and my life. Because this same stone on which you can build also becomes a stone that will break you if you fall on it. So let's look at some other scriptures. Let's go back to Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 8. Chapter 7, that won't work. Chapter 8, verse 13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow or reverence. Let him be your fear or reverence, and let him be your dread. For he will be as a sanctuary or dwelling place, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, both to the houses of to both the houses of Israel, a snare to the inhabitants of Israel. Now let's go look at another scripture. Let's go to Matthew 21. Matthew 
Now, it, this is a, at the end of a parable that Jesus has been telling about the, the, the vineyard keepers, where uh, the owner of the vineyard sent various servants to find out about it, and uh, they killed them one after another. So he said, all right, if they've not respected my servants, then I'll send my only son because certainly they'll reverence him because what they think of him is a reflection of what they think of me. And when they saw him, they said, ah, that's the one that's going to inherit us. Let's kill him and seize him as inheritance. Verse 39 says, they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, verse 40, he, what will he do to those vine, vine, vine dressers? Verse 41, then he said to them, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruit in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. What he's talking here specifically about is to the Jewish leaders of his day. Because what happened is, Christ came, first of all, to them. John chapter 1 says that the world was made through him, but they didn't know him. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. It's talking about the Jews. The Messiah was prophesied through the whole Old Testament to be the deliverer that God was going to send to them. When he appears, they don't recognize who he is because he doesn't come in the form that they're expecting. They're expecting a king to come to deliver them. And as we talked about before, because they're under the, the dominance of Rome, they're expecting a king to come from God to break the Roman bondage over them. That's what they're expecting. And when you're expecting something, that's what you look for, in which cases you often miss what comes. So you need to base your expectation on what God says is going to happen, not what you think he means. And what happened is they didn't read Isaiah 53, which tells them that first of all, he's going to come as a suffering servant because somebody had to bear the price for their sins before he could come in victory as their king. So when he comes as a servant, they don't recognize him because he doesn't come in the form that they're looking for and expecting, although some begin to get that revelation. So the prophecy here is that the one that's been given as the cornerstone will also become a stumbling block to those that don't recognize he's the cornerstone. Instead, they think he's an impediment that has to be taken out of the way. And that was the attitude of the Pharisees. He's a, he's a blasphemer. This is the Son of God. They're calling a blasphemer. Why? Because they didn't recognize who he was. And so the, the foundation, the cornerstone that was intended to be the foundation of the church, to them became a rock that they became offended over, and therefore they stumbled over him, and they were injured and destroyed. So what I want you to see this morning is this revelation of who he is forces one or the other. It either becomes the basis of a revelation on which God will establish his kingdom in you or it becomes something that you stumble over, become offended at, and it breaks you spiritually. It, you, people are either offended at who he is or submit to who he is. There's no middle ground. That's what God wants us to see. You're either offended at who he is, 
or you submit to who he is. There's no middle ground. You cannot redefine him. We've talked about that before. You can't say, well, he was just a good leader. He was just a good moral teacher. He was a great prophet because he doesn't give you that option. We talked about this last week. If he's the son of God, (laughs) then he's not just a good prophet. He's the son of God. He may prophesy, but he is God's son in the flesh come to redeem mankind. And he is either that to you or me, or he's a source of offense. We're talking to people in the church. Because we want to redefine him to make him in who we need him to be. So that we get from him what we want. In which case he doesn't get from us what he wants. So when we redefine him as anything but who he is, we become offended at who he is. Because he is the Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we'll talk later on, we're all sons of God, but that's because we're in him. If you're in Christ, you're a son of God. But what I want you to see this morning is the same rock the same revelation of who he is either is the foundation of your life and of the church or it's something you stumble over by stumbling over I don't mean you get up in the night don't see it and trip over it I mean you try to use it for something other than it is and you get broken over it but who he is confronts us with the choice I either accept who he is and as a consequence of it I bring my life under him or I reject who he is and try to make him into something else. In which case I'm offended at who he is. I'm not offended at what I want to make him into. I'm offended at who he is. His own family got offended at him. So you can know him but be offended at who he is. Because they knew him but to them he was little Jesus who grew up with them. He was their older brother. He grew up in the, fa- in the neighborhood. That's why when he came back to his own hometown, they said, wait a minute, this is, we knew him. He's the kid, he's the carpenter's son. Good boy. Right? But, I mean, he can't be the Messiah. They stumbled over the revelation of who he is. Some of his own family and his own neighbors. Well, let's read on. But we're going to have the revelation, aren't we? So we're not going to stumble. Let's go to Acts chapter 4. This is a great scene. Peter and John have just, in the name of Jesus, raised up a man who was crippled from his birth and has caused all kinds of commotion. So they arrest them and bring him into custody. And they ask him, by what authority or power have you done this? And Peter's answer is, um, that by the, by the name, 
In verse 10, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. That's sticking the stone in their face. <laughs> this man stands here before you. Let's go and let's look at uh, verse 10. Let it be known to you all that the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there a salvation in any other, for there is no, there is no, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. There's no other name given by God by which we may be saved. So you either accept that name or you reject that name. And your salvation is determined by which choice you make. 1 Peter chapter 2. By the way, he's quoting there Psalm 118. But 1 Peter, we won't turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief or primary cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe... He is precious, but to those who are disobedient, or also translated unbelieving, the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the issue of the ages. Who is this man? God said of him, this is the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we receive him as such and believe in him as such, then he becomes a foundation on which God can build our lives and together becomes the foundation for God to build his church, for him to build his church. But if we reject that revelation, not that he's Savior, not the revelation that he's my Redeemer, but the revelation that he is the Christ, the Son, of the living God. Pastor, are you preaching a different gospel? No, it's the Word. Because if all He is to me is Savior, and that's what there's too much of in the church today. He's my Savior. Now I'm saved. I can go, go do what I want to do. I can live my life the way I want to live because I'm saved. I live in this age of grace. And we're going to have a man here next week who's just written a book to bring perspective to what the Bible says about grace. 
See, if all we see him is what he's done for us, and he has, we need that revelation to know what he's done for us. That's the entrance in. But he said, you must have a revelation of who I am because that will change who you are. And I then can begin to build my church in you. I can then build my church at Faith Christian Center. I can then begin to build my church in New England and the United States and throughout the world because it's built on the revelation that I am the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if I refuse to do that and reject that revelation, then that revelation becomes an offense to me because it forces a choice. He's either who he said he is or he's a liar or a fool. You're out talking to somebody and, you know, they ask, you know, where do you go to church? I go to Faith Christian Center and we talk about how wonderful the church is and where God's been so good to us and gracious. It is a wonderful church and we're so blessed. It is a wonderful church because of God's grace. But the issue is not Faith Christian Center. We're not here to, here to give glory and promote Faith Christian Center. Faith Christian Center exists to proclaim with our words and with our lives with our deeds, the revelation of who Jesus is. And if you notice in a conversation, you can say to people, I believe in God, I love God, I serve God, and they'll smile at you, and they'll, you know, they may even agree with you. But the moment you mention the name of Jesus, a line is drawn. And they now respond to you or react to you on the basis of what they think of him and not you. He is the issue of the ages. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And as you receive that revelation in your heart and it begins to impact you, that's the foundation being established on which he wants to build. And what's happened in the United States, what's happened in most of our lives, we're all there, I'm preaching to me, this is preached to me, is that we're trying to build a church and we're trying to build our lives on insights and understandings about Jesus. And the result is under storms and pressures, what would happen is the, because the foundation is weak, the building will be weak. But God wants to pour a foundation here that's the revelation of who He is. And when you have that revelation, no matter what comes against us, it cannot move us because of the power of the revelation of who He is drives you to be faithful and strong for Him. If it's based on what He's done for you, when, he stops, when you think He stops doing it for you, you'll cave in. But when it's based on who He is, We'll see next week. That never changes. Because Hebrew says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever.